What's up, people, and welcome back. As you might have picked up from previous episodes, I'm pretty interested in the whole Bitcoin phenomenon. So this is one of the reasons why I was excited to speak with today's guest, Mr. Zenon Capron. Zenon is the owner of Capron Asia, a well-known financial consulting and China market research firm in Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Singapore. It is in this capacity that Zenon became familiar with Bitcoin and watched closely in 2013 when Bitcoin mania was sweeping through China. Since then, Zenon has kept a close eye on the Bitcoin happenings in China, so much so that he recently authored a book titled Chomping at the Bitcoin, which gives the first exclusive analysis of China's role in the ongoing Bitcoin saga. In addition to geeking out on Bitcoin, Zenon and I talked about other innovation happening in the financial industry in China and around the world. We discussed the increasingly influential role of the large tech companies, primarily Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and their role in reshaping the banking, investing, and payments landscape, and in fact how such innovation may actually slow Bitcoin's adoption. Zenon also shared with me that it was in fact blockchain, not Bitcoin, that has been getting all the attention from the mainstream financial community these days. Apparently it's what's on the lips of senior people at many of the major financial institutions, and Zenon explains why. Other than that, we get into Shanghai's volatile stock market, the shadow banking industry, foreign tech companies trying to compete in China, and much more. Finally, of course, no interview with a Bitcoin expert would be complete without asking the do you know who Satoshi Nakamoto is question. For those of you that don't know, that is the mysteriously anonymous creator of Bitcoin. So I asked Zenon, and his answer may surprise you. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, definitely don't go to iTunes and leave a positive review. I would totally hate that. Just kidding, of course. And without further ado, I give you founder of Capron Asia, Mr. Zenon Capron. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition. It's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Okay, Zenon, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so, as is usual, before we get going, why don't I give you a chance to introduce yourself and Capron Asia to everyone, and then we'll get into all the, the juicy stuff that you've been working on in the last uh, couple of years. Sure. My name is uh, Zenon Capron. I've been in Shanghai, I guess, about 11 years now. Um, I originally came to Shanghai with Intel, uh, so looking at financial services, sales, and marketing uh, for the company. So, basically, how did we take a chip and sell it to a bank? Um, subsequent to that, I left Intel and set up Capronasia, and our focus is helping financial technology companies uh, understand the market in China and Asia. Mm -hmm. And obviously the, the financial industry in China is notoriously tightly controlled, highly regulated. That's, you know, that's the state of affairs here. How has that influenced the work that you've been trying to do over the last several years? Sure. It's, it's interesting when you think about that, because when I first got to China, I had just finished my MBA, so I was very capitalistic. And, you know, I'm American and Canadian, so I believe in democracy. And right. so when I came to China, I thought, oh, you know, we're in this socialist system and the market's moving slowly. And I thought it was really, I thought it was really obtuse. I thought it was, the market was really misaligned. But what I realized over time is the, the path that the regulators and the government had put us on in terms of reforms in the financial industry is actually very forward thinking. There are some very smart, pragmatic people in Beijing that realize they can't open up the market completely to begin with. So they're doing it step by step. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at everything that's happened, I mean, certainly since I've been here since 2004, 
you know, you've seen the Western banks come into the market, first of all, and then be able to get into B business, second of all. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all the reforms that have happened over the past three or four years, yes, the market is not completely open and there are restrictions in place. But fundamentally, the market has changed dramatically from where we were mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years ago. Right. So, so for our clients, they're seeing a lot of opportunity. Um, a lot of our clients are in the payment space. Right. So when you look at things like mobile payments, if you look at the coming regulation that should allow Western card brands into the market, those are big changes. Mm-hmm. And, and those are really changing the marketplace here and making it more competitive, uh, more innovative. Certainly, I think everything that we're seeing in fintech uh, in China is really changing the market. And mm-hmm. it's it's very basically unrecognizable to what I remember when I got here right. 11 years ago. Yeah. And what have some of the biggest changes been? Because, you know, as I just said, a lot's been made of how tightly controlled the financial markets are here. But as you mentioned, and this has certainly been my observation as well, in that it is a very pragmatic approach, obviously, to manage the phenomenon that has been the Chinese economy for the last 30 years, a, a careful approach is obviously needed, and by all intents and purposes, you could say they've done a, a fairly good job at at what they're, they've meant to be doing. You know, they, they've managed the economy quite well, and obviously the financial system being a huge component of that. But over the last 11 years that you've been here, what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed in in how they've managed the financial system? Well, I think the one of the biggest changes from a from a personal perspective is is and and I love this story because it's 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 so indicative of the changes that have happened when I first got here in two thousand and four uh, when I was working for Intel Intel said okay you can use any bank as long as it's ICBC right because that's that's all they were able to deposit into and mm-hmm. that's the way that the 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 company was set up and the banking system was set up so that everything had to go into ICBC so naturally I had ICBC as my primary bank, and, and all my savings were there and everything else. My landlord had his bank. His bank was Bank of China. Mm-hmm. So every month when I had to pay my rent, I had to go to ICBC, take out my rent in a bag, walk it across the street, queue again at Bank of China, and deposit the money in Bank of China. Mm-hmm. And if I look at that process today, I mean, as we were discussing before, my landlord is Chinese but lives in France. I pay him using WeChat. I pay my staff expenses yeah. using Alipay, and I invest in financial products from Baidu. So, I mean, just from a from a personal perspective, I mean, the, the especially around payments mm-hmm. and that kind of retail end of things has changed dramatically. And, yeah. and I think that, I mean, that that's some of the more visible changes that we've happened seen mm-hmm. happen. But if you look at things like in the capital market space, I mean, we're looking at financial. We've got financial futures now. Um, on the Shanghai Futures Exchange, there is margin trading, uh, short selling on, on certain asset classes. Mm-hmm. High frequency trading is more popular in China now. And there's been a lot of advances and changes in the capital markets as well that aren't so visible to the, the average person in mm-hmm. China, but certainly are indicative of the, the big changes. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to force myself to hold off on some of the things you just mentioned, like the WeChat payments and all the innovation that's happened there. We'll, we'll get to it. But I wanted to get your take on the the recent stock market volatility earlier this year. I guess it was around early summer or summer around that time. You've been watching the markets here for a while. You just mentioned a number of different ways to get involved and how the market has changed. Just quickly, what is your take on the stock market volatility that we saw earlier in the year? 
Look, I mean, the, the Shanghai market is still fundamentally retail-driven. Mm -hmm. We did our first study, actually our first research paper as Capron Asia was looking at the Shanghai stock market, and this was in 2007. Which was another extremely volatile period. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That was right before kind of what you would, might consider the first bubble right. in the market here. Yeah. And so as part of that research, we, we interviewed 600 retail investors in the stock market and, mm -hmm. and found out kind of why they invest, how they invest, um, what they think for the future. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point, the discussion, there was, there was kind of a discussion around the through train to Hong Kong as well. So very kind of very similar set of circumstances to what we saw here. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally, although in that time, the market was probably 20% institutional and 80% retail, now it's maybe 50-50. So if we talk about the amount of volume that's traded on the markets, the right now it's it's probably about 50% institutional and 50% retail mm -hmm. which brings a little bit more stability because you assume that institutional investors are going to be a little bit more savvy but fundamentally a, a lot of the people that are investing in the market it's their first time yeah. and they've they've never seen ups and downs you know as yeah. in the US even in my lifetime i mean there's been three or four kind of stock market bubbles and busts uh, that you can learn from and you can see but here and, and there's definitely, we'd be, we'd be lying to ourselves if the Chinese didn't love a good gamble. Right. Um, and, and, you know, when it's tough when you see your gym instructor, your, your hairstylist, everybody making money in the market. Of course, you want to make money in the market as right, well. Right. And so you really have a lot of herd mentality yeah. that goes into that. Yeah, I think that's a huge component in how those sort of things develop here. But I just, you know, I lived through the, the dot-com bubble, right? And... I remember during that time, you could go to a dinner party or you could go to your parents' dinner party and be sitting around or just talking with anybody, like you just mentioned, hairstylists, whomever. And they'll say, oh, have you heard about blah, 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 dot com? Or have you heard about this stock? You know, and they're doing this or they're IPOing next week. And all it took was, oh, really? They're going to, you know, it took so little. You could say, yeah, they're doing uh, security technology and one of their big clients is... Uh, you know, uh, Nortel or something like that. And then everyone at the table will be like, oh, oh call my broker on Monday and we'll, we'll get it done. And I saw earlier this year the exact same thing here. Like you just mentioned, I'd be on the subway and I'd see someone who clearly was not in a position to be gambling, risking, investing uh, a great deal of their money, at least by appearances. And everyone would be on their smartphone. Look, every time, you could, you, so often you'd look down at someone and they'd be on their smartphone and whereas before they might be watching videos or checking WeChat, so often they were looking at uh, uh, stock charts and you know making trades and all this kind of stuff. And it would be happen everywhere on the subway, at restaurants, and it, it, I, it was just incredible to me. And it really struck home one day when I, I came back home and in my living room was a bunch of uh, guys setting up an account for my girlfriend. You know, so, so there was like three guys in the room, and I, I don't exactly know what's required to set up an account, but apparently. It's very hands-on, and there was three guys on her computer, like setting up her terminal or her account or whatever. And I just, I knew then, like, I'd, I'd, this has been, I've seen this before. This is not going to end well. And literally, you know, a, a few weeks later, we saw the enormous sell-off, and since then, pretty dramatic volatility. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, it's an interesting time. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that these, like you said, they don't have that many years of experience or ups and downs or you know bubbles to really provide a, a context for how this stuff really works and as you said it's mostly retail investors so it's very interesting to watch and I, obviously you think so too because that's that's kind of the business that you're in 
Um, but what I want to talk about is you mentioned innovation in in tech in finance, so fintech. Um, I'm always amazed here at how quickly the uh, the population adapts or adopts new technologies, especially I guess in in the fintech realm. So you you mentioned WeChat payments. Let's dive into that for a second. So WeChat has been around for uh, maybe since 2009 or 2008, mm -hmm. but really hugely popular for you know, the last couple of years. Right? I think they have 600 million daily active users or something like that. And contrary to platforms that we might be used to in the West, like WhatsApp or Facebook or Twitter, which seem to really, you know, they, they grow out of doing something really well, 140 characters or messaging or whatever, and they kind of hang out there and try to consolidate that position. WeChat is a platform that burst onto the scene with messaging that looked like many of these other platforms combined together and now offers a million different things. One of them being, I don't know if they accept deposits anymore, but they used to accept deposits, right? For wealth management yeah, products, yeah. yeah. So they still do that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. you can comment this, on this better than me, but they would launch something like that and then the amount of capital that would be thrown at that by the users in a matter of weeks would be tremendous. You know, yep. why is that? Is that because it's a better option than that they're getting at, at the, the commercial banks? Or what, what's the cause for this rapid adoption of, of fintech that's coming out of these platforms that people already use? I, th I think fundamentally it's just because it's so easy. I right. mean, it, we, did, we did a study. We interviewed, um, this was just a couple of months ago, we interviewed 1,000 millennials in China oh, yeah. and asked them uh, various different questions about how how they use these platforms, what they think of banking, and, and kind of fundamentally around the context of China fintech mm -hmm. and finding out what people's opinions are about that. Because if you look in Western markets, millennials supposedly are driving a lot of fintech right. in other markets. So this younger generation that's sick of working with their banks and wants something different and different way to engage. And if you look in China, I mean, you, you have those same problems. I mean, if you, if you to, to give you an example, I mean, for for we, we obviously with our company, we have a local company and we bank with one of the local banks. In order for me to make a payment, I have to use two USB sticks, four passwords, <laughs> and about 30 clicks right. and typing and everything else to, to make a payment. Mm -hmm. Now granted, I wouldn't use WeChat to make a corporate payment, but it's a six digit code. You know, I find my friend on the list and it's a six digit code to make a payment. Mm -hmm. And I think, what they've done is they've basically taken uh, you know, a process that is fundamentally a little bit flawed. And, and, and a lot of those things, you know, the requirements for a USB stick and everything else are, are based on regulation. You, know, you need the security there. I understand that. Right. But what they've done is they've looked at, okay, where can we remove friction in what's happening mm -hmm. in this process? And you know, I think Alipay, WeChat, they've done an amazing job with creating these platforms fundamentally that are based around, you know, one product or service. So if you look at WeChat and you rightly say it's, it's chat, mm -hmm. you know, that's the fundamental thing. That's why people of this study that we did of these thousand millennials, everybody checked WeChat at least once every couple of days. So yeah. there was nobody that did not use WeChat at least once every three days. Mm -hmm. That was the minimum amount of time. And 80% and of the people were checking it at least once per day. Yeah. If not multiple times, which yeah. is you know, living here, I, I you know I check my WeChat that much, and yeah. I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm ashamed right? so, at sometimes how yeah. often I check my WeChat. Yeah, exactly. So you you've got this you've got this communication tool, you've got this thing that's already got tremendous amount of interest that mm -hmm. everybody's looking at every day. 
And yet, while 1.4, 1.5 billion customers is nice, if you can double that by adding on additional products and services, you're going to do that. And that's essentially what Tencent has done. They've said, look, we've got this great chat application. Let's bundle taxi booking into it. Mm-hmm. Let's bundle wealth management into it. Let's mm-hmm. order movie tickets. So you have this platform that's you know, offering everything to everybody that's checking it every day. And for me, like, I love that, you know, just yeah. even as a foreigner. I mean, the, the, the ease of use with that. Now, specifically around the wealth management side of WeChat, mm-hmm. I guess it was, I mean, it was you about pretty much that really started the trend in kind of 2003, this, this idea of the online, online money market mm-hmm. uh, platforms. And banks are limited with how much interest they can pay on deposits. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you think about a demand deposit, you know, something that you can deposit one day and take out the next day without telling the bank beforehand. Mm-hmm. So you have demand deposits and time deposits. And yeah. so time deposits, you know, could be one day, could be one week, could be one month. Right. What Uibao and um, uh, WeChat have done, the, the product behind the wealth management side of WeChat, mm-hmm. is nearly instant liquidity on something that pays what a time deposit would pay. Mm-hmm. So if you have your money in a bank, you might get 2 to 3% interest, right? If you put in a time deposit, you may get 4 or 5 but your money is going to be tied up. Mm-hmm. When UABAL first launched in 2003, the, the rates were, were quite high. I mean, it was 6 to 7%, which was kind of unsustainable. Right. But even though they've come down a little bit, they're, you know, 3 to 5%, and you can fairly easily beat your bank accounts deposit rates by using these platforms and so they saw that as an opportunity and they they really jumped on that and i think that's part of the reason that you know the the ease of use and the better returns Mm -hmm. that you can get on it and the the interface is totally designed for the chinese consumer Mm -hmm. if you look at it you open up the wealth management page and it says i've made three renminbi today or 10 renminbi today that's the first thing you see and Mm -hmm. and for the I mean, for the average person in general, but especially the Chinese, that that's very attractive. Yeah. You know, to be able to see that right away and see how much money you've made, it's kind right. of it's very satisfying. Yeah. Know? Well, it and this is not a, a slight on the the Chinese people or the culture, but they do seem more focused on you know money or how much money they have or exactly like you just mentioned exactly how much money they're making than maybe counterparts throughout different areas of the world. Um, but just before we leave that one. How is it that these companies, especially WeChat, were able to offer a higher interest rate than, um, for example, the, the commercial banks? And how are they allowed to? I would think, you know, would, would not the, the central bank and the commercial banks have a, take issue with that? Yeah, so, so two aspects on that. I mean, if you look at when UABL started, mm-hmm. uh, liquidity in financial markets was quite tight. Right. So in other words, for, for banks to get funding to meet their capital reserve requirements, they're lending out a lot of money and they have to have deposits right, to, mm-hmm. to, to balance against that. Yeah. The initial products that UABAL created uh, were around negotiated deposits. So like essentially overnight products or, or weekly products mm-hmm. between banks. So saying, okay, look, we'll, we'll lend you this money uh, overnight and you, know, you give us 4%, 5%, whatever the rate is. And then they would, they would package that up and essentially distribute it to the users. So they were helping banks get the liquidity they needed. Right. The challenge for banks was that that increased the cost of their funding. Right. So if they have a deposit, they have to pay out 3%. Mm-hmm. If they have one of these negotiated deposits, they have to pay out 4%. But if you need the money to meet your capital requirements, you need the money to meet your capital requirements. Right. And there was, very little, there was very little choice around that. So that was kind of the initial 
the initial driver behind this. But when you think about what they're doing, with regards to your question about the regulation, UABAO and WeChat, they're, they're essentially distribution channels. I mean, the, the underlying assets are held by an asset management company. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the case of uh, Ant Financial and UABAO, it's Tianhong mm -hmm. Asset Management that, that Alibaba is essentially, or Alibaba, when I talk about Ant Financial, that's the financial subsidiary of Alibaba. Alibaba has essentially bought out. So all these guys are doing is, is just redefining the distribution channel. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at kind of online money market funds and things, or, or money market funds in general, in order to buy them five or six years ago, you would have to go to your bank branch and fill out the paperwork and buy it there. Mm -hmm. So the banks had a lot of control over the market, and these asset management companies were really struggling. Mm -hmm. um, about four years ago, online distribution started. So you could start to buy these products on Taobao and everything else, and now now you can buy it as simply as, as using WeChat or right. Alipay. We talk about WeChat probably too much on this show, but it's such a it's such a phenomenon, and there's no parallel anywhere anywhere else in the world. And the more it develops, the more that becomes true because they're adding all this different functionality and these things you can do. I mean, as you mentioned, banking, wealth management, order taxis, order food, send money to friends, chat, obviously. I mean, everything. I mean, it seems like it'll just dominate everything. And I was speaking with someone recently and we were kind of, we were joking that, you know, Facebook paid 19 billion for WhatsApp, right? Which is, to me, I mean, I don't use it that much. I have an account because uh, some friends at home, you know, we, we use that to keep in touch, even though I try to get them to come onto WeChat. But how, do you have any idea throughout your work, throughout your dealings, a value that you could put on, on WeChat? Oh, no idea. I mean, Not, none whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, billions and billions, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's, we have to assume if a chat app was 19 billion and yeah. had fewer users and was probably much less sticky, then you have to assume that WeChat would, would get a pretty hefty sum, right? Look, I, I think the thing that's really amazing about WeChat is where it can go. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that we look at is big data in China. And, and the way that these companies are able to use big data, um, you know, you look at what Baidu has done. They've launched a financial fund that's based off of search results. Mm -hmm. So they basically said, look, we're going to take aggregated, aggregated search results mm -hmm. and we're going to combine that with the CSI 500, which is the, the Shanghai, or CSI 100 actually, mm -hmm. the Shanghai Index of Funds, and we're going to create a financial product around that. Yeah. I think we're only towing, putting our toes in, in the water of what is potentially going to happen with these apps. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, the, the, the exciting thing about something like WeChat is, and, and this is an example that people have talked about for years, but in theory, it could be enabled such that, okay, so WeChat proactively comes to me and says, hey, Zanin, you know, I noticed your anniversary is coming up. Mm -hmm. How did it know that? Because it saw my calendar data, right? And it said, you know, based on your previous purchases of food at restaurants in Shanghai, we know that you might like this new Italian place. Mm -hmm. you, you could take your fiance to the new Italian place and, yeah. uh, you know, have dinner at that. I say, you know, that's great. Okay, click. And there's booked. a deal on it, you know, yeah. it's 25% yeah. off. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You have your Twanguo in the, back end, right. in the background or your, um, <clears throat> your group buying to, you know, get the deal. And then, you know, a week before it says, okay, you know, Star Wars is opening up as well. We thought you might like tickets to go see Star Wars mm -hmm. because, you know, you've watched sci-fi movies in the past. And, and, and then finally, you know, a couple of days before it says, hey, would you like to book a, a nice black car? 
to drive you there. Mm -hmm. You know, a nice Mercedes or BMW to, to drive you to dinner and drive you to the movie. I mean, that, that level of integration, it's a little bit minority reportish. Mm -hmm. you know, that, you, you, that one company has access to all of your data. But, you know, to be honest, for me, I, I don't have that much to hide, right? right. My, my, my privacy, you know, you kind of have to go into life assuming that you're not hiding much right. these days right. because, because you know, whether it be Tencent or it be NSA or it be Google, everybody has access to your data somehow, yeah. right? So, I mean, for me, that convenience of having that offered is, is really compelling. And I think that's, there's a lot more value that these platforms can really pull out of these these services that they've started to bring together mm -hmm. in terms of that you can, you know, there's an icon for booking taxis or there's an icon for buying movie tickets, but they're not seamlessly integrated mm -hmm. yet. And I think that's the thing that'll be really exciting. And when you talk about value, I think we haven't even touched on that yet, yeah. you know. That is very exciting. And it is a little minority report-ish. <laughs> but, and again, we, we've addressed this on the podcast before, but I think you eat, you have to you have to make a choice. You're either like really going to reject all this integration and all this big data and all this you know all the, the the information that these companies can gather about you and say I'm going to do my best to uh, avoid it and let them gather as little as possible, or as you said, just open right up and say, you know what, I've got less to hide than I have to benefit from all this stuff. And you have to go into it with uh, a, you know a responsible, aware mind because you most of us don't want to be drawn into different directions that are not good for us. But I think if you go into it with a clear mind, you say, this is, this is a trend that's happening anyways. I mean, <coughs> in the future, how are you going to even avoid data being collected on you? I mean, it's between your credit cards and your search history and your Facebook and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's out there. And there's some big, huge companies I'm sure you're very familiar with that are crunching that data, leveraging it, selling it, using it to, from their perspective, obviously, sell you more goods and services but from your perspective put more relevant goods and services in front of you and then you can decide whether or not they actually fit for yeah. what you want to do right exactly what's what's the status of of quote-unquote big data in in china is there a lot of activity in that space i know i've spoken with some people recently but it's i don't have a, a great understanding of it i mean i get it in concept you know lots of data out there and there needs to be companies that put that data together and package it and sell it or use yeah. it for actionable uh, intel or actionable you know, things they can use. But what put, shed some more light on it, on it for me. Yeah, I think, I think it's huge in China, and, and for, for a number of different reasons. I mean, when the whole privacy concerns here in China, in that same study of millennials, we, we asked them what they think about privacy concerns, and when we compared that to Western markets, there was a slightly less concern right. about their losing their personal privacy. I mean, it was still, it was still a you know, majority felt that that was an issue. But mm -hmm. for, for a number of different reasons, it's, it's, it seems to be slightly easier for tech companies in China to be able to leverage big data. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about the example that I gave with Baidu, if Google tried to do the same thing, you know, the reaction in the U.S., I would, I would shudder to think what that would be because right. I think it would be, there would be a, a tremendous amount of pushback. But, you know, in China, that fund was sold out in a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and it's performed well, right? It's performed well. It's yeah. per I mean, up until, <coughs> excuse me, up until the, the market this year, yeah. it had outperformed the market by 6 or 7%. Wow. Which is, which is, okay, the market was quite tepid in yeah, the past yeah, yeah. couple of years, but 
um, you know, to be able to do that is, is pretty incredible, right? Sure. And so, so I think a lot of people are seeing the benefits of this, you know, that, that fund was sold out in, in a matter of hours, you know, a multi, multi-billion B fund sold out in a matter of hours because people saw the money they could make yeah. and, and they've done very well out of it, you know, the people who have invested in that. So, you know, you're starting to see that, I mean, obviously the big, the big usual suspects, like you see the Baidu, I mean, mm-hmm. Baidu, the amount of effort and research and money that they put into big data and analysis is is massive mm-hmm. as as you would expect from any large search company you know, i mean i'm sure google is doing the same sure. thing you're starting to see more applications around that though i mean the personal credit in china is something else that mm-hmm. is um is an area where big data is really starting to kind of take hold a little bit more because the personal credit consumer credit databases in terms of credit rating and, and credit analysis are pretty rudimentary in China mm-hmm. in terms of what's offered by the government and what's available in the private sector. So mm-hmm. you don't have, like in the U.S., you would have Equifax, and you know, you'd know you be able to go on and see your credit score is 650 or 720 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and everybody has access to that data. But in China, it's very disparate. So there's, there's different pockets of information, but there's not a consolidated credit database that people are able to look at mm-hmm. on the back end. So I, I believe it was towards the end of last year, beginning of this year, the government said, okay, look, we're going to push these eight companies to create technology-driven credit database, credit rating mm-hmm. platforms. And so the first, you know, most well-known one is Sesame Credit from, from Alibaba. And so what they basically said is, look, we're going to take all the data about your shopping habits on Taobao and Tmall, your payment habits using Alipay, mm-hmm. and we're going to give you a credit score on the basis of that. Yeah, I remember reading and, about that. And, you know, to be honest, the tech companies are better able to do that than the government sure. because they have access to all of these databases and yeah. all these different things that they can leverage to create that. Now, there's been a lot of pushback on Sesame Credit because, you know, like they've been doing games around it and, and kind of gamifying it for consumers' benefit, but also for their own benefit, which yeah. isn't ideal. But it's early days for a lot of these platforms. So I think... And big data, there's a lot. It, big data is one of those technologies that's been talked about for a long time. I mean, we've had big data for, for decades. Yeah. It just wasn't called big data. I mean, much like fintech. Right. I had fintech for years. I mean, I started off my career in fintech in 98, and it was financial technology, but now it's sexy. Yeah. And and same thing with big data. I mean, big data is, is essentially analysis of disparate groups of unstructured data, right? And we've had that for years, but, you know, the the, the industry emphasis behind that to get a handle on that is mm-hmm. is pretty impressive now. And so I think we'll see a lot more about that in China, especially because the the privacy the privacy rules and the treatment of privacy here allows companies to um, I'm trying to think of a better way of saying it, but <sighs> take advantage of right. that, that do opportunity. More. Yeah, do more with <clears throat> the data. Could any of this happen I mean, could any of this happen in Western markets? Because as you just mentioned, I mean we Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, right? The, the big three. I mean, they do so much now. They're involved in so many industries in such a big way. You know, could, could even Western companies, Western equivalents do this? You know, and that's... Probably not, right? That's, that's, I mean, we focus a lot on that. We focus a lot on Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, right. and especially what they're doing in the financial markets. Yeah. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's really world-leading... Uh, technology and approach to the industry and and that's one big gap in our knowledge is why these companies in the u.s are not doing it i mean we we talked about facebook pay Mm -hmm. or facebook you know payments that you're able to send friends i mean i i don't know i mean granted i don't have that many 
that many friends in the U.S. that are of age to be using this, but I went, I went to, um, gave a presentation at a university about a month and a half ago in the mm -hmm. U.S. and and one of you know a, a fairly top university, and and I asked everybody in the class, raise your hand if you use Venmo, and if you're familiar with Venmo, it's basically person-to-person -person payments, mm -hmm. and it makes it very frictionless to send money to somebody else, and these companies have been in that space for years. PayPal has been in payments for years, but they never mastered that last, you know, really, really removing friction. And it's yeah. these small companies that are able to do it. So I don't, I don't know why the big companies aren't, you know, aren't getting into it more. I'm sure there's a little bit around regulation sure. and there are listed companies that are under a lot of scrutiny, but at the same time, I mean, the opportunities there are immense. Yeah. It, again, it, I'm always amazed at the, the rate of adoption of these sort of things here in China. And I think partially you could make the case that there's not a huge legacy for most of these users, right? You know, a lot of these mobile users that we just referred to, you know, the 600 plus million that are on WeChat, I mean, they didn't have desktop computers. Many of them didn't have bank accounts either at all or for a very long time. So when a solution comes along and it's all on your phone and you don't have to change anything around, I mean, maybe in the West people are like, yeah, you know, these other Facebook Pay and these other things are available, but one, they're not as frictionless, and two, I'm kind of used to doing things with my online banking and all this kind of stuff, and I have relationships here and there. Here, there's no legacy to overcome. It's just this is the solution you can use, and most people will just look at it and say, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's yep. easy. You know, why not? So, and, and a lot is made, or a lot has been made throughout China's development of you know, copycatting things, innovations in the West, which obviously has occurred in various industries. But what I think people are only just now being, uh, beginning to realize is that there's a lot of innovation happening in China, especially over the last few years, especially, especially in technology. Um, and I, being here, I think we see that, and we see this huge wave coming where it's not a stretch to think that Chinese tech companies could really sweep over the world and have an enormous impact there. But I don't think it's, I mean, obviously it's not as, top of mind as clear to people that aren't on the ground living in China because they don't interact with these products and services on a daily basis. It's still Twitter, Facebook, Google, all this kind of stuff. But man, I mean, the next few years, that's super exciting in that industry because already, I mean, they're, they're killing the market here, but if they find a way to, to grow beyond their borders, which technically they don't even really have to, but having such a huge, strong domestic market allows them to, you know, they, they bring these sort of things to the West and figure out the regulatory landscape. You know, I, I, can't, I can't see them not competing well, and I, I use that lightly against the likes of what exists already. Exactly, and, and I think we're seeing that. I mean, a lot of the talk that we do when we go out of China to go to a lot of these events is educating people about what's happening in China fintech. Right. Because if you look at what's happening in Western markets, I mean, you have companies like TransferWise, you have companies like Betterment. So TransferWise is a payment company that yeah. facilitates payments globally. Uh, Betterment is kind of an online, not robo-advisor, but online automated wealth management uh, platform with a very low fee. Mm -hmm. If you look at Betterment, there's less than a million people that are on the Betterment platform. Yeah. UABAO has 300 million people. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a completely different scale and scope yeah. of, of what these guys are looking at. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of that, I think, comes down to how these companies developed. I mean, if you think about a PayPal, when PayPal launched, they would have had maybe 250 million people as their starting base, mm -hmm. right? So a, a U.S. company focused on the U.S. market right. initially. 
in order for them to expand to reach 1.5 billion people, they have to expand to so many different countries right. and so many different regions. Almost and impossible, really, based on the numbers, if you exclude China. Exactly, you know, exactly. West, yeah. With Western Europe and the U.S., you still can't hit those kind of numbers. Right? And the problem for a company like PayPal is that your technology footprint is your competitive advantage, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that you have these back-end systems that are able to process payments quickly, rapidly, effectively, without having problems on the back-end. So, you know, the minute you expand, even from the U.S. to the U.K., you, you pretty much have to keep the same technology mm -hmm. on the back end, which means even the British spend money and make payments slightly differently than Americans, mm -hmm. right? So you, but you, PayPal is not equipped to be able to adapt to all these different markets. You know, if, if, if Germany spends differently than the U.S., not even to think about when you get into, you know, Southeast Asia and, and right. Africa. I mean, the way that people spend money and use money is completely different. Mm -hmm. So in order to get to those 1.4, 1.5 billion people, you'd have to have 100 different platforms on right. the back end, which isn't cost-effective. There's yeah. no way they could have done that. But with these Chinese platforms, they're able to create something, one, that matches what the Chinese consumer is looking for. Mm -hmm. And you made a good point. I mean, it's China is a mobile society. I mean, that's the first device that people get is their mobile phone mm -hmm. before they get a laptop, before they get anything else. Yeah. The, the way they interact with each other and pr do payments and e-commerce tends to be on the mobile phone. And mm -hmm. that penetration is much higher than in Western markets as well. So I think that's the first thing. And then these platforms are designed with a consumer in mind, designed with a Chinese consumer in mind. Yeah. So, yeah, they might struggle as they go abroad. I mean, Alibaba is making a lot of investment in India right now, mm -hmm. and, you know, we've seen them pull back from the U.S. They, they had the, I think it was called 14main.com, was their, their kind of e-commerce platform in the U.S. Uh -huh. My understanding is they sold off that investment now uh, and pulled back from that. So right. it'll be interesting to see how they they move abroad, but certainly, yeah, the penetration they have here is incredible. I'm sure they'll encounter, I mean, not only are these great companies and they're doing amazing things, but they have been protected by the regulatory landscape in China for a long time. I mean, just a, a very obvious example is Google, you know, for various reasons has been kept out of China, and pretty much the, the, it seems like, whether this is totally true or not, that the Chinese government or Chinese community has attempted to keep out the stiff foreign competition while the domestic guys get their game together and, and really get up and running. Um, but it's, it's also, I mean, to your point, these, these, these foreign companies trying to enter China, of course it's amazingly attracted to them because not only is it a huge market, as you were saying, 1.3 billion, but it's so homogenous. Like if you can, and it doesn't really matter if we're talking about tech or clothing or food, if you can nail it there and really, you know, get a foundation, then an enormous market opens up. You, you were talking about TransferWise, which I believe is a UK company, mm -hmm. right? Okay, if they, if they can get something going in the UK, well then they gotta go to France, and they gotta mix things around, and they gotta get their foothold, and they gotta deal with regulators and all that kind of stuff, and then they gotta go to Italy and do the same thing, and then they gotta go to Germany, and I mean, it's so much extra work. You come here, if you crack the can here, I mean, it's the biggest market, obviously it's the biggest market in the world, but even if there were, I mean, the U.S. is not even comparable in terms of size, but nor is it even comparable in, in terms of homogeneity. I mean, you've got black, white, red, brown, you've got Chinese, you've got European, I mean, it's, and even southern U.S. versus northern U.S. versus east, yep. west, I mean, there's so many differences. In China, and I, I hope I'm not, I am generalizing, but I don't think it's a negative way, but that, you know, the, the culture is very consistent from place to place. You know, there's not these enormous differences. Of course, there's great culinary traditions in various places and this sort of stuff but by and large it seems like consumer behavior in china is very very 
consistent across most areas. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. But, you know, I'd, it was actually easier for these Western tech companies to enter 10 years ago. Right. I mean, and, and because I think... Have any done it well, though? Have, I mean, are there any still around that we can identify? I think not from... from in peer-to-peer lending right now is is a lot of those are although they're Chinese companies mm-hmm. they're they're effectively Western run in, right. in a lot of cases so I think there's a couple of examples around that. That's true. Yeah, there are certain they niches. were started here, right? Or yeah, 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 yeah. So many of the um, uh, Dian Rong as an example. Right. I mean, the, the the gentleman who runs that was ex Lending Club. Yeah. and came over and set it up. And here. that's another good point. There's a, a, a tremendous amount of really successful and great uh, tech startups here in China that were founded by, you know, returning Chinese or, you know, yeah. foreigners or a com- combination of it. So, you know, it's not the, the perfect, it's not a clear picture just to say they're all, all, all the people succeeding in China are Chinese-founded tech companies. Exactly, right? yeah. Lots of great people. Yeah, yeah certainly. I, you know, it sounds really trite to say, but people really still don't understand China. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of the companies that come here, we still talk to companies that come with a very arrogant attitude yeah. and say, you know, we're going to take the market because we're going to use what we do in the U.S. We know it's better than what's happening in China. Right. And and we still see that today. I mean, uh, certainly a company like TransferWise is going to be limited in terms of what they can do in payments. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to have to partner with a Chinese company to be able to facilitate that domestic part of the payments proposition. Yeah. But so there's there's certainly regulations that hold certain companies back. But you see in a lot of cases, you, you still have these companies that are coming with, uh, you know, I'm going to take a Western model and I'm going to try and put it on China and, and it's going to work. And, and it, it's been good for some companies. I mean, certainly you look at a company like BMW or Mercedes, they've mm-hmm. come with a brand and, and they've done very well on the mm-hmm. back of that because they've kind, of, they've kind of understood the consumer's, you know, approach to something like that and yeah. their understanding of like that. But I mean, you, you, there's, I mean, you know this as well as I do. The, the 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 road of Chinese tech companies is littered with the carcasses of foreign <laughs> tech companies that have that have tried to make it yeah. here. You know, and the it's, Groupon story is like a case. You know, in business schools around the world right now, it's a it's a case study. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in fact, I was we had on the show Mark uh, Sekia from from Sherpas recently, um, and because there's lots of interesting things happening around the world but of course in china around food delivery and you know food tech and innovation in that uh, regard and he actually doesn't consider himself a tech guy at all and you know sherpas was around long before especially in china tech in food was was a hot thing you know Mm. before the ulamas and all that kind of stuff but i I i wanted to ask him because and this is what we were just discussing I feel like if you're a big Western tech company, like a giant, Google, Uber, whomever, you can't really resist. You've got the capital. You know, it's a huge market. You know that the the Chinese market is basically the future. I mean, it's going to be the biggest, most affluent consumer market, tech market, whatever. So you can't resist, right? So in the case of Uber, you know, obviously they've partnered up with Baidu and they've got a, you know, committed over a billion dollars to fighting Didi Kwaidi in, in China, but I just, I can't help but think this whole scenario like in Groupon is just going to play out again, you know, because from their perspective, I understand like, you know, a bold founder and tons of money and global ambitions. Yeah, you got, you have to target China. No one, no one, you're not going to listen to anybody that tells you, you know what, you're going to work real hard. You're going to put a ton of money behind this. Just, you're, you're never going to take 
take over the hometown guy. You're never going to beat the, 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 the homegrown company that understands the market better than you, that is just as well capitalized, that, you know, that is already a more popular service. It's just not going to happen. I mean, no, I don't think you can say that to a, a CEO of an enormous company with tons of money behind it with global ambitions. So here we have the fight between Didi Kwaidi and Uber, both companies putting a tremendous amount of money behind it, detrimentally so in the short term, obviously. They're just throwing good money after bad, and we're all getting free taxi rides as a result, which is great. But I just, and I want to get your take on this. I mean, do you think it's possible for a tech company, even as big as Uber, even as well capitalized, to come in and compete with you know what could easily be considered a comparable service, or at least if they wanted to make it a comparable service, they could, or even a better service in some regards. So, Yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent point. And, and, you know, the Groupon story is really, I mean, I, I met with some of those guys during that time, and I kind of followed what was happening. And they, it, it, it really comes down to, I, I truly believe the arrogance on, on, on the people that are coming into it. And, right. and, you know, how open they are to really understanding what's happening in the market here. Mm-hmm. Because, if you talk to some of those people at the time, I mean, that, that Groupon, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this before on the podcast, but I mean, that, that company was stuffed with foreigners. And I met more managing directors of China Groupon. I, I met at least five people that had that title mm-hmm. within the organization. And, and that was the first smell, you know, that didn't pass the smell test. Right, me, right. But for sure, there was something that was, it was a little bit off with what was happening there. Yeah. Um, and Tesla is another great example. I mean, Tesla, uh, Elon Musk, for all his smarts, you know, his first approach to China was like, look, I'm just going to sell the cars there. Mm-hmm. I don't need to have local manufacturing. And now they're talking about that, right? Now they're getting a little bit smarter around that. Mm-hmm. I think the the difference, these models are a little bit more sustainable in my mind. The Uber model and Tesla, you know, I think the there's obviously a lot of money behind both of those companies. Mm-hmm. So I think we could see the end results for both of those companies being quite a bit different than Groupon. I'm yeah. actually quite bullish on both of the companies here. I right. think the, I mean, it's certainly in my mind, the, the Uber platform is very technology slick. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you can see the, and, and you know, uh, the, the, the local um, Quaidi, DD, I mean, they're, they're, duplicating a lot of that and they're they're getting much more sophisticated on their platforms as well yeah um so i think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because i think we're seeing it's it's i don't want to say 2.0 but you know we're seeing this next round of tech companies i mean the first round was like the ebay's and and ebay came in and you know jack ma ate their lunch because he basically said look we're going to make the platform free until we get people on the platform Mm -hmm. and 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 using the platform but ebay came in and says look we've got a great platform we're going to charge for it and they came into a market where that model, that, that C2C model of e-commerce didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, we're going we're gonna to make a market, but we're going to charge for it. But Jack Ma said, look, no, we're going to make a market. We're, gonna, we're not going to charge for it. We're going to have all these things on the back end to help the merchants right. do business, mer- microcredit and everything else that he's offered. And so we saw you know, just eBay essentially fall by the wayside in China. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, this generation, it's, it, again, it sounds trite to say, but I think these these leaders of these companies hopefully are a little bit more uh, educated mm-hmm. about the potential market here, and hopefully they're getting people on the ground that that know the market. That being said, you know I, I think head of Tesla for China has rotated three or four times in the past couple of years, so right. they're still facing challenges. But you kind of pointed to it before. I mean, these companies and, and a lot of our clients as well are venture capital invested, and the venture capital company says figure out China, mm-hmm. and that's where we come in. We help them, you know, kind of figure out what's going to happen here, but. 
it, within every company's mandate, you can't exclude this 1.4, 1.5 yeah. billion marketplace. You, you have you, to try, right? It's, you, it's it's kind of a catch twenty two because, yeah. you know, experience shows, and you know, I, I respect your opinion, and and for me, I'm excited just to see how it all plays out. But I just and I I, I, t I say this too often, but I just can't see how if both companies are equally capitalized, one has better relationship with you know local government regulations one has a you know more intuitive a stronger grasp of chinese you know user interfaces and what the chinese market actually wants <coughs> and can tailor the service however they want to do it and i think chinese the, the chinese market's general preference for homegrown solutions well, that's a bit tricky. In some, in some cases, that's not at all the case. But I think for tech solutions, you could say that their, their preferences for, for homegrown uh, solutions. You know, I, I, I don't know how the foreign guy can come in and, and, and compete there. Maybe, maybe they end up buying their way in. Maybe, maybe there's a partnership there. And maybe that's the smart way to go. Maybe, you know, Uber just puts a ton of money into buying a portion of DD Quaidi or there's a partnership there. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And like I said, most of us will probably benefit from the war as long as it lasts. But, but, uh, but like, like, like I said, it's a catch-22 because you, you can't not. You know, these big companies, whether it's um, pressure from people who have funded them or it's just the general ambition to open up, again, you know, the biggest market in the world, possibly even now, but definitely in the future, you really can't not make an effort. But in making an effort, you're going to spend a ton of money and the chances of success are extremely slim. Exactly. Yep. Um, so now I want to, I want to crack into uh, Bitcoin a bit. Um, you wrote a book last year or published a book last year, right? Yep. Chomping at the Bitcoin, the state of Bitcoin in China or? Yeah. The past, present, future. The past, right. Bitcoin um, so we had Bobby Lee on the, on the podcast, obviously a few, few months ago and this is actually quite relevant because we've been talking about payments a lot today and different functionalities that are being offered by the tech giants in, in China. Um, and Bitcoin is this like elephant in the room, I, I find. It's got a lot of hype behind it. A lot of people are interested in it from a libertarian standpoint, from a speculative standpoint, and from a number of other different perspectives. <coughs> and, you know, the people that are passionate about it are extremely passionate about it you know they and i don't know if we want to go down the rabbit hole of the fiat currency system and central banking around the world and all that kind of stuff i think more and more people are are privy to that what's going on there but we were just talking about how seamless how frictionless it is to use wechat to pay for you know a drink at a bar or a car or a financial product and I, pres I presume ultimately those are still using, you know, the, the traditional banking pathways for payments. It's just that WeChat has made it a hell of a lot easier. So in that, I don't know where to start here. I want to talk about Bitcoin in China generally, but maybe we can just start by saying, you know, people are waiting for that watershed moment with Bitcoin. Like, when's it going to become easy to get, easy to use? And then that'll be the time when everyone goes, aha, you know, it'll, it'll really take off. And that's and people will say that's what they want because the fundamentals of the currency itself, the cryptographic currency, that's the type of money that they, those the, the supporters want and they believe is best for people and the world. But when you've got options like uh, payments on something like WeChat, that is just so easy. I mean, this is this is kind of like the the traditional banking system's defense. You know, it's their uh, it's their way of combating you know the innovation that 
And I don't think many of them at this point are too afraid of Bitcoin. But of course, I think they they know that a lot of their practices and, and the way they operate is kind of antiquated. But you've got these tech companies coming in and partnering with them, essentially repackaging their services and making it super easy. I mean, long winded here, but the, the, you, with traditional Western banking, you could start to make the case or in the next couple of years that, you know, something like Bitcoin would reduce friction there. But when you've got these things coming online that are basically transmuting traditional banking and making it a hell of a lot uh, smoother, then the case for something like Bitcoin being more convenient or easier to use or anything like that is gets even further off. Yeah. So after that, you you crack in wherever you want to and, and tell me what you've been looking at in Bitcoin. No, I think I think I think you hit it right on the head, John. I think it's you know it's it's horses for courses and what problem does it solve? Mm-hmm. And you know fundamentally as a store of value, if you look at the Chinese like how Chinese would use it. I mean, when we, when Bitcoin really started to take off in 2013 in China, uh, there were, I think at one point, 20, 20 odd merchants on Taobao or on platforms that would accept some kind of Bitcoin payment or had some kind of Bitcoin products and services to yeah. offer. And that today that's zero, uh, pretty much. Yeah. And, and really the question is, you know, what benefit does it provide? I mean, if you, if you look at it, if we go through each kind of use scenario, I mean, for merchants, the accepting China Union Pay right now, the merchant fee is 1.38% mm-hmm. uh, or less if you're a merchant in China. So basically to accept a China Union Pay card, yeah. you sell 100 RMB worth of goods, you're going to get uh, 98, 90.62 at, at the least amount of money from that. And th- that, compared to other markets, is, is quite it's good. good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And when would you get it? When, when would they... Like if when do they settle? Within within a few days. Okay. Within a few days in most cases. So I mean the merchant fees are quite low, especially as compared to Western markets. I mean Western markets you'd pay anywhere between two and four percent depending mm-hmm. on the card yeah. as a merchant. So for a merchant, you know, your settlement is relatively quick, the fees are relatively low, just accepting China Union Pay. Everybody has a China Union Pay card, mm-hmm. enabled debit card at least, if not credit card, yeah. that they're able to use. You know, the benefits, yeah, you can evade taxes, but that's really kind of a short-lived strategy uh, because <clears throat> the government will find out and eventually, you know, crack down on that. And then Bitcoin is actually much more traceable than a lot of people think. So from the merchant's perspective, there's not too much benefit from using it. From the consumer perspective, it's true. I mean, you know, if we were sending Bitcoin to each other, we say, you know, John, I'd like to sell you this bottle of water. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let me send you some Bitcoin. You sit here for a few minutes, you know. Wait for it to wait for the transaction to go through the Bitcoin network and be confirmed that I've actually given you the money. So right. it's, it's a About little 10 bit minutes or something like that. Yeah, right? it's a little bit slower than what it needs to be. Right. Um, and then the 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 thing that's talked about a lot in China is is Chinese using Bitcoin to get your money abroad, mm-hmm. get your money out of China. And fundamentally, I mean, even using Bobby's exchange and then cashing out in another exchange tends to be a little bit more expensive. I mean, it tends yeah. to be you'll be paying more than one percent to get your money out. Right. But you know, I have contacts these these yellow cows Wang Nio, that are able to get money from renminbi to hong kong dollars in one day for about 50 basis points for yeah. about half a percent and i asked bobby about that when i had him on and i i, I kind of tiptoed around it because i didn't know like how sensitive this issue might be you know because he's the head of an exchange and if, <laughs> if word got out that that exchange is being used to transfer money out of the country maybe it would put unwanted attention on on him and the exchange but he said he, he really thinks it's relatively low, the number of people doing that. And certainly the, the, the volume and the amounts, is, is, he thinks, is very low. And for, 
you know, you, you can comment on this and, and understand this better than most, I presume. But for the people, for the for the moneyed people in China, for the really wealthy people, I mean, they have solutions figured out to moving their money outside of China. And they're, they're not going to rely on the Bitcoin network to move out, you know, tens of millions, if not more, uh, of their money outside of China, right? Like, as you said, they have intermediaries that do it for, a, you know, a percentage or, or two exactly. and, and take care of it yeah. in big amounts. I mean, even if you get... Even if you bought $100,000 worth of Bitcoin on the Chinese exchanges, even on Bobby's exchange, like you'd affect the price as well. Right. You know, by the time you filled your orders, the price would have moved against you yeah. quite a bit. So you have all of that risk. Whereas, you know, the, the, guy, the guy that you've been using for many years to help get your money out of China is, is there. Yeah. And he charges half percent and he's yeah. reliable and, you know, he's always going to be there. So I think, you know, going back to the original question, I think you, you have to look at, you know, what friction are you trying to solve, right? Mm -hmm. And in an ideal world, yes, Bitcoin can solve a lot of these issues, but yeah. it's just not, the solutions aren't mature enough to mm -hmm. be able to do that. And, and mobile payments is a great example. I mean, NFC payments was talked about for years, so near-field communication payments. And mm -hmm. when we did our top 10 re trends report a couple of years ago, we said, okay, this is going to be the top thing for the next year. And then we said it was going to be the top thing for the year after that, and the top thing for the year after that. And if you look at the way the market's gone, it's gone to QR codes, right? Like mm -hmm. mobile payments are now driven by either peer-to-peer, -peer, like person-to-person -person payments just yeah. using WeChat or QR codes. And why is that? Well, because it's a lot less friction. You know, it's a lot easier for people to do that. I mean, even using uh, mobile payments in general is more challenging than using a credit card. I mm -hmm. mean, you take out a credit card and you swipe your credit card and you're, you're done. I mean, in Singapore, if it's less than 25 bucks, you don't even have to sign. In the U.S., it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think we'll eventually get that, to that in China. So the friction on that is very low. So I think that was one of the challenges for Bitcoin is yeah. like from a, from a merchant perspective, from a consumer perspective, what problems are you solving? And those are even more acute in China, mm -hmm. you know, when the fees are so low, when there's so many platforms, and like maybe in the U.S., like your choices are Venmo, right? That's mm -hmm. pretty much all you can use to maybe do person-to-person -person payments quickly. Yeah. But here in China, you have a number of different platforms that you're able to use f for doing that. Yeah. So I think it was Bitcoin. The challenges that Bitcoin faced in China were no different than any other place, but uh, more acute here yeah. in, in mainland. I feel like. You know, and I, I would characterize myself as a supporter of Bitcoin because fundamentally I, and this, you know, this may not turn out to be the case practically, certainly not now, but fundamentally I, I, I like what it represents, right? I like taking the power, the control of the money supply away from, you know, politicians and central governments and basically taking it away from anyone and, and letting a, a far more democratized market dynamic dictate value and you know, currency uh, issuance in general. However, I mean, I think Bitcoin just is a, attempting to solve a, a far higher order issue than where most people are at and what most people want solved. I mean, most people, it's not on their radar, at, at least at this point, current state of the world, to say, you know, let's do away with central banks and the current monetary system and get something that's more, you know, in the hands of the people, more... Uh, democratized or whatever as you're saying people want easier ways to make payments and at this point bitcoin just does not do that at all i mean as you said in china there used to be and i think most of those vendors were probably like novel for the novelty of of being a, a bitcoin some of the a vendor that accepts bitcoin and i think that's probably the case in many parts of the world still if you if you accept bitcoin i presume 
very little of your uh, revenue is transacted in Bitcoin and you do it because you're a part of the startup community or the tech community or you want that association. Um, so it, it doesn't really solve uh, that issue. But as we were saying earlier, the Chinese people, when they smell an opportunity to make a buck, they, they go whole hog, right? And maybe that's why we saw such interest in it in 2012, 2013, and there was so much speculation. So from a commodity or financial asset point of view, maybe we can talk about that and why it was so popular in China and what story transpired there around that. Yeah, so I think in in the it, it's human nature, right? I mean, human nature of, of kind of greed and, and gambling and, and wanting to make a quick buck. And mm-hmm. I think that that drove a lot of what we saw in 2013 when right. it went from a couple of dollars to you know a thousand dollars peak. Yeah, and not just in China, but obviously very robust in China. Yeah, 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 yeah. largely driven by that. So I think there was there was a lot of interest around that, mm-hmm. and and certainly I think. At that time, from an investment perspective, it made a lot of sense. I mean, if you're able to buy at 200 and then sell at 1,000, but nobody knew because mm-hmm. it, it's not something that's predictable, right? I mean, you, there's, there's, it's not tied, although it is tied to all of these other world currencies, there's mm-hmm. nothing that can accurately predict the, the, the price of what a Bitcoin should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you talk about oil, if you talk about, you know, um, corn futures, if you talk about IBM stock, mm-hmm. there's a few indicators in the market that we can use to figure out kind of which direction this 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 stock should be going and of course there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of finger in the air kind of judgment about what's going to happen with it but mm-hmm. you know there are indicators of where it should go but with bitcoin there was nothing around that the only idea was oh you know it's going to be big in the future right yeah and there there's a lot of things that are going to be big in the future so i think that was that was the biggest challenge is that you know you're you're investing in something that you're really making a wild guess on you it, it is gambling it's playing black or red mm-hmm. you know that it's going to go one way or the other and it is completely down to chance 99% chance of which way it's going to go right uh, at least at that point certainly i think now now there's a little bit more of an ecosystem around bitcoin in general yeah. that you can make a little bit better prediction but it's still struggling with the same issues that sure. it had a couple of years ago and that that volatility will prohibit most people from wanting to transact in it right i mean are you going to want to get paid in bitcoin or offer you know coffee at your coffee shop in bitcoin if you know from one day to the next it could be 20 30 40 percent difference in in value i mean that's just nobody's going to want to transact in a currency like that um but i i am interested in what could cause a like a watershed moment for bitcoin i think one is obviously the infrastructure being more built up around it less friction in using bitcoin acquiring it transferring it etc but even then you know, it, it would take something dramatic for people, for the light bulb to go off in people's heads and say, okay, I want to move to this now. And then, of course, every time one of those watershed moments happens, the volatility argument will come back into the fray with Bitcoin and say, oh, well, it's almost like the success, any push forward that Bitcoin has is also kind of detrimental to its development because it, put, it makes a big push forward and the price is very volatile for a while, volatile for a while. more people get into it. But then as a result, all the all the pundits say look how volatile it is and that causes a retraction and you know i I think it's it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out but you often hear the argument or the question like what's its intrinsic value and you know central bankers around the world or like hardcore finance people will say it has no intrinsic value which 
you know, you could make the same case for the U.S. dollar, the euro. I mean, what's the intrinsic value? It's, it's what people believe is the intrinsic value. And people, most people around the world today, by default, believe in their national currencies or, or various national currencies because it's what they were born into and it's what they've always used. You don't think about it. Okay, there's a certain amount of inflation, deflation, whatever. But, you know, the intrinsic value is how many people are willing to give how much of a, a, a value to this, uh, implied by how much they're willing to pay for it and how much they're willing to use it, etc. So what do you think, give me a scenario or a timeline or both uh, where these sort of watershed moments could happen to trigger more interest, more widespread adoption of, of something like Bitcoin? Yeah, it's a really good question that I don't have a, a I don't have a fantastic answer for. I think it's I I think what it would really take is one government to say, okay, we're going to start using this as mm-hmm. you know our default currency. That almost, you know, yeah, yeah. that's a big step. <laughs> I, I but to a certain extent, I think it really needs to be something like that that mm-hmm. happens because, and we're seeing this with Apple Pay right now. I mean, Apple Pay is in in theory is a very elegant solution, but uptake is a little bit less than what was expected in a lot of markets, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is. It is, uh, although it's getting better, you know, you can do kind of one one finger authentication and transactions, and you now the Apple Watch makes it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's a very mainstream payment method that is still struggling, right? Mm-hmm. And so for Bitcoin, it's it's a non mainstream payment method that arguably doesn't necessarily have the advantages that you know an Apple Pay has. So I would really I, d- I don't know what that watershed moment can be or mm-hmm. what, what needs to happen, but certainly something big yeah. for this to really take off. And do you think, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different cryptocurrency coins, altcoins, as they're called. Um, and I had this chat with, with Bobby, and obviously there's the network effect of being kind of the first mover, the first one to have uh, the press, right? And But all these other al- alternative altcoins use similar technology right they use the blockchain they use and maybe they have a the the issuing limit is is a bit different or whatever but one of the one of the main uh often talked about benefits of bitcoin is that nobody controls it right a central bank can't just say okay we're going to tr- print a trillion dollars and boom you print a trillion and everyone who's holding those dollars is is devalued or deflated to some degree however under the circumstances that bitcoin was developed you know, this character that nobody knows who they are, Satoshi Nakamoto, because when he developed Bitcoin and started, uh, you know, mining Bitcoins, he was the only one doing the mining. He's He now represents a, a very disproportionate ownership of Bitcoin, right? And if Bitcoin did, in fact, become as big as some people would like to see it become, then the, the control that he would have over the currency simply by virtue of owning such a large percentage of it would effectively put him in the position of central banks or, or, or whatever around the world today. So my, my thinking is, you know, even though Bitcoin has the steam now, would not people at some point just say, oh, well, we're just going to start this again. We, and, you know, we love all the things of Bitcoin more than OKCoin, OK Litecoin. You know, we love the 21 million over 100 years or so. We, you know, we like everything about it, except for this guy at the beginning got so much of it. So we're going to restart it. And nobody's going to get that much at the beginning. And it's going to be called whatever, you know, <laughs> I was going to say Titcoin, but, uh, you know, it's something else. Right. What's what's to stop that from from happening? 
Nothing's to stop it from happening. And, and, and that's, I mean, you mentioned these altcoins. That's a lot of what these are focused on is mm-hmm. solving the issues that, that Bitcoin in theory has. I mean, one of the more famous ones was Aurora coin, which was issued, well, issued it was, was started by the Icelandic government. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did was, was handed out to everybody. So everybody started out with an initial balance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about that, that's potentially one of the more fairer ways of doing it. So you don't have these large, these large holders that, you know, control, as, as you were saying, you know, control a significant amount of the currency, which, right. which makes it a little bit more challenging to do that. But, I mean, ultimately, these, these currencies and everything else are, are facing the same challenges, I think. As much as we say that we don't want a decentralized, as much as it is nice to think about, you know, the, the U.S. government is taking all my taxes or mm-hmm. controlling the Federal Reserve and all of this, the majority of the people out there, whether they know it or not, actually want that security. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as people complain about what, what NSA does and everything else, I mean, there's, there's people out there that kind of want that stability yeah. that comes with these kind of actions. And I think... Whilst you know, from an anarchist's kind of wet dream, Bitcoin is amazing, right? <laughs> right because right. It, it 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 alleviates a lot of these things that they see as as problems mm-hmm. uh, in the world today and in, in the economic system that we have today. But yeah. you know, fundamentally, the the whilst there are issues in the financial system mm-hmm. that we have globally, most people kind of like that system because it gives them access to the things that they have. It allows them to finance their BMW mm-hmm. or to, uh, you know, to make person-to-person payments and to know that the government is there on the back end. So yeah. I think this kind of gets back to our question about privacy earlier on is that I think inevitably, you know, all of these things are going to be much more open in the future and, you know, the privacy is not really going to exist mm-hmm. kind of to the extent that it has existed for the previous years. And inevitably, you know, that, that will allow governments to have a better insight into what we're doing, mm-hmm. but at the same time provide kind of the products and services that we want to survive. So I think whilst the, you know, the technology behind Bitcoin and blockchain is, is very elegant and very interesting mm-hmm. and very compelling yeah. in a lot of ways, but really what problems is it solving? Yeah, and I think a lot of the proponents of Bitcoin would argue that you know, it's still in like development phase and it's waiting for the relative uh, volatility and the relative um, uh, benefit of the solutions that it represents to increase. And that relativity would be relative to the existing financial system, right? So perhaps as it stands today, not a shot. I mean, it, it doesn't even come close. But I guess a lot of those people are placing their bets on the current financial order of things, un, con, you know, you can make the case continuing to, or at some point in the future, unraveling. And we, you know, you, that's an interesting conversation to have based on what's been going on, especially since 2008, but, you know, for the last, you know, several years in terms of is the current way of operating the global financial system sustainable? And I think cracks are beginning to emerge, which is probably why solutions like Bitcoin are getting the type of attention they're getting. But I, I would agree that for it to get to the point where it could even compete on any level with, with the existing order of things, I mean, it's a still a very long and probably going to be a very, very bumpy road. And who, who comes out on top, I think it's way too early to tell. 
but as you said, it is kind of the anarchist libertarian's wet dream to say like this is the type of money the world should be should be mm -hmm. based on. And I, you know, I, in an idealistic point of view, I agree. But as you said, from a practical point of view, I mean, as much as you want to harp on the financial system today, I mean, we can get the things we want. It works relatively well. If you if you if you stay on top of it a bit, you can manage it so you're you know you're not being deflated away or whatever. However, if if the problems are exacerbated, then again, that relative benefit of the status quo versus Bitcoin will change. And it'll be interesting to see how that dy dynamic plays out. Um, but you mentioned blockchain. A lot of, a lot of attention is being leaped upon um, uh, the blockchain technology. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the existing tech, um, financial giants, financial institutions, rather than focusing too much on, on Bitcoin and either trying to fight it or adopt it or anything, they're looking at the underlying techno blockchain technology and saying, ah, this is something that we could potentially use. And I think that's what these institutions are doing in general is, you know, whether or not they're trying to do a one-on-one -on -one battle with Bitcoin, they're probably not. That, I think that's exacerbated by the pro proponents of Bitcoin. But they do realize that with the way technology is changing, they do need to integrate more uh, technological solutions into their the products and services they provide so that they are more frictionless and more uh, attractive to their users right but how how is the financial industry in general looking at the blockchain technology why are they so interested in it i mean i could replace anarchists so bitcoin is the anarchist wet dream and right now blockchain is the is the banker's wet dream i right. mean this is I, I was at Cybos in uh, early October, and for people who don't know that, that's uh, SWIFT every year puts on a, probably one of the largest financial conferences in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, I think, 8,000 people there that gathered in Singapore, and next year it's in, um, uh, it's in Geneva next year. So it rotates between Asia, Europe, and, and the U.S. Right. And, and blockchain was, was all over the place. Really? The, the talk about blockchain was really... Um, in in every conversation about innovation that moved beyond kind of operational issues to look forward into the future, blockchain was mm -hmm. one of the things that was mentioned. Um, and that's really, this idea of blockchain has really taken over kind of in the fintech community um, in this. And, and every, I would say, every major bank, every one of the top 50 banks around the world, uh, with the exception of the Chinese banks potentially, is has a blockchain strategy wow. at this point. Every Western bank is looking something around that is is working with like R three Sev, which is kind of a um, a third party organization slash company that's been set up. That's they now have uh, thirty banks that they're working with to create. They're still kind of in stealth about what these solutions are going to be, but mm -hmm. are blockchain based solutions. I mean, fundamentally, what blockchain does is you're replacing one technology with another technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was at Citibank years ago, one of the when it, and granted, this was uh, 2003, 2004, um, in Citibank in Portugal to to send off the end-of-day clearing file to mm -hmm. the local clearinghouse for them to be able to settle all of the transactions for the day and net them out amongst all of the banks. We would take a floppy disk from a computer that was on the Citibank network. We would walk it over to a computer that was completely disconnected from any network, put the floppy disk in, uh, connect via modem to the local clearinghouse and mm -hmm. upload the file because that's what was required from a regulatory perspective to, to be right. able to do that. You know, and we, we've come a long way since then, but uh, 
you know, fundamentally, the system that replaced that system is more technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we're doing is we're putting technology in one end and we're taking out costs on the other end. Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, what big blockchain does for these banks is eliminate costs. It makes things more efficient, but you're, you're taking one technology and replacing it with another technology. So it is interesting to see where this is going to go within the banking industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been... In, inevitably, it'll be a, an organization or a coming together of banks that will create the platforms that work. Because, mm-hmm. of, you know, I think there was talk last year, Citibank was creating Citicoin. It was more of, a, more of an altcoin. And, and that, you know, those individual initiatives by the banks are going to no, go nowhere. Because if you, look at, if you look at what we have now across, in the industry across capital markets, banking, and payments, it's the third-party organizations like SWIFT. It's the third-party exchanges like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. that are creating these centralized platforms that allow people to trade assets or trade value. Um, and those are, the, those are the things that we're going to be replacing with this blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really when multiple different organizations come together because blockchain for finance is, is interesting and compelling. But we, we have databases in the financial industry, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what makes blockchain, what makes Bitcoin compelling? Well, it's, it's decentralized, it's trustless. So in other words, if, if somebody else gets on the network and is able to make a transaction, we don't have to trust everybody else in that transaction right. we, because the network ensures the trust. Yeah. Do we really need that in the financial industry? I mean, does Citibank trust Deutsche Bank? Well, if you're making payments, you kind of have to, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the values of a blockchain you know it's getting a lot of hype right now in the industry but we really have to look at what problems are we actually solving Mm -hmm. within the space and i think that's the challenge going forward but i think certainly if anything comes out of bitcoin and blockchain it's going to be blockchain's usage within the industry whether that be you know the advertising industry or the banking industry or or within it's not it may not necessarily be bitcoin itself but the Technologies and the processes and products that open up as a result of the technology underlying. Yeah, uh, which, which again could slow down uh, Bitcoin's adoption because the relative benefit would then be decreased even further because you're taking a part of the benefit of, of Bitcoin and integrating it to the existing system, yeah. right? Um, and for those of you that don't know about blockchain or mining or any of that, go to the Bobby Lee podcast because we kind of we do discuss in, in, in decent detail how it all works and what the mining process is for and how it does manage trust and things like that. But one of the things I, I didn't do at the time of that <laughs> podcast is I hadn't yet read the white paper, the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, because I just assumed it would be you know this hugely long technological thing that I wouldn't be able to understand. I think it's only nine pages, and it's really simple. You know, it's, uh, So I read it, so don't, don't be uh, intimidated by the word blockchain or, or this technology, because in... in at least in theory, it's quite simple to understand. I mean, it's a very elegant, simple solution. Um, and and on top of that as well, we didn't mention this, but Bitcoin is obviously not the first attempt at digital currencies. It's just the blockchain is what is the, is the innovation that allowed Bitcoin to solve that problem of double spend, right? And, and to, to create that decentralized uh, trust network and then mining and all that kind of stuff on top of it. Um, but I thought that 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 bared uh, mentioning. So, if if the existing financial system is looking at blockchain, you mentioned that there are other uh, potential applications for blockchain technology. 
I hear a lot about this. You know, I've heard some, you know, in terms of, you know, deeds for, for real estate and things like that. Can you just, I mean, what's on your radar for how, you know, companies, startups, whatever, might take the blockchain underlying technology and use that for other services? Yeah, I think you pointed at it. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of processes that, uh, I mean, one, a friend of mine described selling his apartment in Paris and mm-hmm. to go to the, the, the kind of the land register office and, and, you know, change the ownership of the apartment is, is as you might expect. It's always in, a nightmare. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and even more so in, um, in there. So, you know, I think there are a lot of, a lot of existing processes that could potentially be streamlined mm-hmm. with this. I think there's, you know, if you look at potentially the use of smart contracts, which are, you know, essentially fully automated contracts that are hosted on a technology platform that are potentially self-executing contracts that, mm-hmm. that allow you to, you know, using cryptographic methods, using these trustless networks to create something that's very much more efficient than what's out there. I think we'll see a lot of applications around that mm-hmm. in, in smart contracts, in any kind of asset ownership. Um, I think there's a lot of um, streamlining and efficiency gains to be had from something like that. Right. So those are the things that kind of I'm focused on and, yeah. and, and find very compelling. it be interesting to see. I know a lot of startups in Silicon Valley and around the world are starting to look at different applications for that technology. So it'll be, it'll be really cool to see. But before we get off the kind of mainstream banking thing, I do want to get your take on something that we, we just discussed. But what is your view of the current global financial system? I mean, obviously, since 2008, it's been a bumpy ride. It's on most people's radars, you know, lots of struggling in pretty much everywhere. What is your take on it? How do you see it unfolding in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, look, I think, you know, from a structural perspective, things aren't ideal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you could start from scratch and redesign a financial system, I think that, you know, there are things that we could do better. But inevitably, it's it's a near impossibility. I mean, if you look at the U.S., which is, in theory, one of the more progressive countries around the world, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're stuck in kind of a democratic deadlock. Uh, between the Republican Party and the Democrats in the U.S. And, and the tax code is tens of thousands of pages, you know, and the regulations are another tens of thousands of pages that yeah. make it incredibly difficult for banks in particular to, to operate mm-hmm. in these markets. And so even, you know, even trying to simplify the tax code in the U.S. is challenging, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at what <laughs> Obama is doing with the... Um, with the the tax loopholes that the reasons why you know Google and Apple have a lot of their profits offshore to avoid the tax what are we doing are we are we trying to solve the underlying issues no we're putting putting stop gaps on it says you no know, you have to repatriate that money mm-hmm. and really what we should be doing is looking at the the root causes of this what are the inefficiencies in the tax code and i pick on the tax code the us tax code what are the inefficiencies in the tax code that are making these companies move abroad mm-hmm. that those are the fundamental issues that we're we're doing but those are those are kind of the sacred cow. Like we can't really touch that, and we're not getting anywhere in the political system to be able to to be able to touch that. Yeah. You know? So from a structural perspective, I think there are definitely inefficiencies that could be solved, but I don't think we're going to see any changes there. And, um, and what's your view on, you know, a lot, a lot is made, of course, on the fiat currency system that we currently have. You know, since I guess 1971, totally a fiat currency. What? You know, and, and in recent years, all over the world, but let's focus on the U.S. again, the amount of, they use different terms for it, but money printing that's been going on. You know, do you see a crisis in confidence in the U.S. dollar or other major currencies? Or how, how do they unwind the amount of debt and the amount of 
money printing that they've accumulated? I mean, what's the end game there? Yeah, and I, and I don't know, you know, what the end game is. I mean, the, the, the reason that the U.S. has been able to play that game for so long is that because other countries believe that so it's a better investment than, currency, right? yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, a trust, trust that they're going to be able to get their money back later on. But, yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's a... It's kind of similar to Bitcoin. You know, I'm just happy to be alive to be able to see this because right. I think whichever way it unfolds, I mean, his, historically there hasn't been a hegemon. You know, hegemons change, right? right. So it was the U.K. kind of before the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe the U.S.'s time is coming in, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. I mean, you look at the U.S., the domestic economy, economy seems to be recovering well and seems to be doing well. But mm-hmm. there are these underlying fundamental issues that that could cause problems in the future. And at the same time, you have... China, China's growth, which, which arguably is, you know, the the if it were truly a free market, that maybe, you know, if the if the currency was free floating, then maybe it wouldn't have developed in the same way. But mm-hmm. a lot of the domestic development here, you know, you look at property, you look at all these things. This is not there's not a credit bubble in China. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 based a lot of this is based off cash and the development, <clears throat> the development, and the economic development that we've seen in China. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., a lot is, is a lot is based off, you know, you hear these stories about people who have thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt mm-hmm. in the U.S. And it's it's really scary yeah. that, that you know, that we've kind of enabled this. I pay off my credit card debt every month because it, it, it bothers me to have that right. that debt there. And I don't like paying 18 percent interest. Right. Sure, so. Sure. So these kind of these kind of issues we're seeing in every part, you know, the credit fueled economy from from student loans to credit debt to. Mm-hmm. To the housing market, you know, I don't know. I don't know how, how it's going to unfold. So I think, I think there will be big changes. How are you hedging your bets? You know, how are you hedging your bets for the next five, ten, fifteen years? Oh, you know, offering. I'm not. If you looked at my stock market track record, you, you'd, you'd, you probably wouldn't be asking advice from me <laughs> in terms of in terms of investment. But yeah. you know, I'm 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 very much cash focused now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that that is. I'm a little bit worried about everything that's happening, so I'm definitely kind of staying in cash. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say staying in cash, but all my money coming in is is right. yeah, that new money is is staying in cash. And do so, you invest in Bitcoin? Do you uh, own Bitcoin. I'm an interested party. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of person that can buy an island in the Caribbean like some right. of these guys. You, were, you didn't get in when it was a couple cents. No, I, I mean we made we made a little bit of money over 2013 as right. as as it went up. But you know, I think one of the things I, you know for the listeners of the podcast, I wouldn't recommend necessarily investing in Bitcoin. I mean, I think what's what's interesting about it is when you when you invest in it, then you have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I I stayed away from Shanghai A share market, but earlier this year, I spent five hundred dollars and bought into a fund in the U.S. that tracks the A share market. So what does that force you to do? Well, that forces you to pay attention right. to to what's happening in the market. And so right. I think, you know, Bitcoin certainly, you know, I wouldn't want to make recommendations of people how they should spend their investment money. Mm-hmm. But I think buying a little bit of Bitcoin and kind of going through that yeah, process and it. spending it, yeah. I think it's quite interesting because, yeah. you know, regardless of where this goes, the the questions that it raised, and you kind of hinted at this before about, you know, fiat currencies and the role of government and taxation and everything mm-hmm. else, you know, in writing the book and going through this entire experience over the past couple of years, if nothing else, just learning about that and just mm-hmm. asking those questions of myself and looking at what's out there is is quite educational. And yeah. I think everything that we're seeing right now, 
you know, I'm sure the Industrial Revolution was an exciting time to be alive as well, but, you know, everything that we're seeing in, in China fintech and everything that's happening around these, these bat companies, mm -hmm. everything that's happening around Bitcoin, everything that's happening with the global economy, it's a very interesting time to exciting. be involved in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so from a from kind of a nerdy economist uh, <laughs> follower perspective, I, yeah. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, I do too. And it's you can rack your brain <clears throat> trying to figure out how it's all going to play out. But, I mean, it's all just so uncertain and it's all so volatile and there's really no guessing. So I take the same approach. I mean, I don't, I'm not an investor in Bitcoin, but I have some Bitcoin just so I'm familiar with how it works, you know, just so I can play around with it, you know. For, for whatever reason, just so I can have these conversations or so I can potentially use it at some point in the future. Um, I'm going to let you go soon. Two more questions, relevant, you know, kind of current event questions, <clears throat> and then a few more to finish off. But one is we saw a lot of volatility in Bitcoin in, I guess, last month it was now mm. or like the last couple months where it was hovering around 230, 240, 250 for the last 12 months or so. And then it shot up. I think it got as high as Five, five, five something, you know, yeah. something like that. And then now it's backed off to 330 again, which again points to its volatility. But do you have any take on where that volatility came from? Why, you know, just out of the blue, such such enormous volatility? I mean, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of speculation around that. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that it was a Russian MMM scheme, multi-level marketing scheme. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're looking at the European Union right now is looking at kind of banning cryptocurrencies because they believe that you know it's funding a lot of this terrorism mm -hmm. uh, that's happening so there's a lot of different factors that you can point to but it's 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 it, nobody really knows i mean the, the only people that really know are people like bobby who see where the money is coming in and where the money is going out right. so they can kind of see who's trading on that mm -hmm. uh, but you know even them i'm not sure if they really have a clear idea of <clears throat> what what's driving it because it is it is there. There really aren't fundamentals behind it. There's a lot of speculation more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask you this too. I asked Bobby, "Do you know who Satoshi Nakamoto is?" Uh, if I did, I wouldn't share. It <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the other current event is that's not an answer though. Is it a yes or no? <laughs> I can accept a yes, and you won't share. Sorry, John. What was the next question? <laughs> you're so the other relevant uh, question is: recently there was a. Uh, a bust of some kind in China. You know, a lot is made of the shadow banking industry, underground banking industry in China. And I think recently there was a, a bust where $64 billion not were not seized, but it was a... Well, what, tell me what that was about. And then if you can comment generally on that industry in China and the risks that it, it, it poses, potential risks it poses for the financial system here. Yeah, well, I, th I think we're seeing the government crack down on a couple <clears throat> of different things. I mean, the, the, the shadow lending industry, we'll talk about that first. I mean, that's a huge issue in mm -hmm. China. And, and it's interesting if you look at, I mean, just in the context of what we were just talking about before, I mean, the, the, the regulator stance on Bitcoin was that banks can't engage directly with Bitcoin firms. So companies like Bobby's need to have a third party in between to, to handle money coming in and off those platforms. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's, I mean, that's changing a little bit. I mean, that's becoming a little bit easier for those guys because the government is less focused on that now. But, you know, there, there's, if we look at the peer-to-peer -peer lending regulation, right, peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms in China have been on the market since 2010. Bitcoin, kind of within six months of Bitcoin becoming popular in China, the government came down on that. 
But peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms have been around for five years before the regulation really started to come out. It was only kind of towards the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Why, why would they not regulate peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms as quickly as they did with Bitcoin? Well, peer-to-peer -peer lending, to a certain extent, solves the issue, right, of shadow lending. I mean, the, the, the challenge is still there. I mean, small and medium enterprises do not have the access to capital that state-owned enterprises do in China, mm -hmm. which is forces them a lot to go to the shadow lending platforms to get, to get money and to get funding. So peer-to-peer um, -peer lending platforms, if you look at what's happening in peer-to-peer -peer lending in China, a lot of the lending is small and medium enterprise focused. Mm -hmm. So it, it's really focused on providing SMEs access to capital. Peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms bring some of that shadow lending into the light. Uh, so, you know, there's a little bit more transparency. The government can check up. The peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms can report on loans that are happening on that. So if you look at the – the government is trying to crack down on the things that provide risk to the industry. So if you look at shadow lending, they're, they're gradually changing that. Again, going back to the start of our conversation, you know, they can't completely stop it. Mm -hmm because they can't say cut it off, because that will destroy the economy. Much like they couldn't allow foreign banks to come full bore into China, they had to gradually let the foreign banks come into the market right, mm -hmm. to, to preserve the stability of the financial industry. And so I think the regulatory crackdowns that we're seeing and you know the seizure of these funds mm -hmm. and then the focus on cross-border, we're seeing a lot more crackdowns on money leaving China as well. These mm -hmm. networks are starting to be, you know, the old China Union Pay Macau thing where you would go and buy jewelry uh, in renminbi using your China Union pay card and then pick up Hong Kong dollars, like we're seeing those things slow down. And that's down. what this bust was, right? This was yeah. a $64 billion bust of people trying to move that amount of money outside of China, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we're seeing a lot more focus from the government on that. Um, and, and I don't think that'll slow down. I think that's a natural extension of kind of the corruption crackdown that we've seen over the past four or five years. Right. Is, is, I mean, this was one of the things I was waiting for the other shoe to fall mm -hmm. on that because they know that it's happening. And, and, you know, potentially, I don't want to speculate, but potentially some of the leaders are right. using those channels <clears throat> as well, you know. Yeah. And, and, and certainly people within their families and within their acquaintances are yeah. because otherwise you wouldn't buy – I mean, think about buying a uh, you know, property in Sydney. I mean, it costs $3 million to buy – a reasonable house in Sydney, mm -hmm. they, well, a few million dollars. I mean, if you're taking things out legitimately, $50,000 at a time, that's going to take multiple years. And right. these, these billionaires that have huge property portfolios, how do you have your money abroad, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have to ask that question. And I think that's what the government is starting to, to – they know the answer to the question, but they're starting to crack down on what the answer is. Right. Is it truly a threat? You know, because a lot is made about how much money is actually leaving China and the Chinese people – you know, maybe they don't have such a rosy outlook of the economy and they want to get their money invested abroad, these sort of things. Is, is, that, is that a reasonable concern on, an, on a countrywide scale, like the amount of money that's leaving from the wealthy? I, th I, th I think it is. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not an economist to be able to say for sure, like how much that influences things right. and how much we should be worried about that. But I think Certainly from a confidence perspective, that's, that's a little bit worrying that right. people still feel that they should have their money abroad rather than in China. I mean, everybody wants to have a diversified portfolio, but like, uh, you know, I would say 80% of my assets are in U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. and then I don't feel the need to diversify from a currency perspective, but Chinese feel the need to do that. So I think there's, you know, you have to look at what's causing that and why people would want to do that yeah. um, and the underlying issues. Yeah, it's been... Uh, I, 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 
it's been interesting to watch this corruption crackdown that's that's been going on. I mean, you, you look at just one metric that I, I, I thought was fascinating. You look at the gambling revenues in Macau since this crackdown has started. I think they were, the, the, the first year, I think they were down over 50%, which just shows you the tremendous amount of money that was going through those channels to to just that one area of, of, of expenditure, you know, gambling, and I'm sure other outlets as well. But, um, you know, and I, if you were living in China, I was waiting for that too. Like, when is when are they going to kind of cut this off? And, and you know, you, you, it's very palpable if you're living here. You know, nightclubs that used to be, like, privately reserved, you could never get through the doors. Like, you never even knew they existed. Now, you know, they're engaging you know, local event companies and you know, rebranding because they actually have to become legitimate businesses now mm. because they don't get all that, uh, that fun money. Um, okay, last thing I want to ask you, then I have a, a couple of quick-fire questions for you. What's, on, what, what's the most exciting thing that you're looking at right now? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the work you're doing, but, you know, you're very, your finger's on the pulse of what's going on financially in China. What what is exciting you on the upside? Not 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 on the fear side, but what you know? What what are you really excited about? I, I think it's it's these large technology companies that are getting into finance, right. and and I think for me that is the, you know, I've, I've worked in the financial industry for nearly twenty years now, and so I've seen a lot over the course of that time, and mm. and um, yeah, for me this is this is. And if you look at what they're doing, I mean, they're coming to it with a one of the one of the big topics in the financial industry right now is the concept of digital banking. Mm-hmm. So that's being able to service the customer anytime, anywhere, through any channel, and having uh, a flexible technology architecture to be able to do that. Not many banks have that in the West. There's a couple of banks um, that started with the idea. Okay, we're going to be a digital bank. We're going to have this flexible platform. Mm-hmm. Most of these platforms, um, and we were we were talking to one of the Chinese banks uh, um, this last week about from one of the projects that we're on, and they're <coughs> they're using <coughs> technology that's sitting on a, a, an IBM mainframe that's 20 years old, and and so if you look at what Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent are doing within the financial industry, mm-hmm. they're coming in with incredibly flexible technology platforms with the latest ideas about how to conduct financial services and with this experience of using you know, WeChat Pay or Alipay and these financial products of how it works for Chinese consumers. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, it's exciting for me, not just from a business perspective because this is what we look at every day, but how this is going to play out for me is very exciting because now these guys have banking licenses. Mm-hmm. And if the regulators allow them to open you know, across the industry to open accounts remotely, what they're going to be able to do in the industry is is really incredible, and it's mm-hmm. it's something that we haven't seen. I mean, a, you, we go to these conferences in Singapore or in the U.S., and people are talking about digital banking. It's it's a pipe dream right there, right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, banks are working on it and they're getting there, but these guys are doing it mm-hmm. in China, and that for me is tremendously exciting. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a, you you asked. I think you were fishing for a non-work related one, but <laughs> to be honest, I mean, it is it is the most exciting thing for me. You right. know, I, I wake up in the morning, I look at the news, and I find out what these guys are doing because mm-hmm. I find it very very fascinating. Yeah, it's exciting to me as well. And I hate to nag on the Canadian financial system, but my God, when I go back there and I have to deal with any aspect of the banking system, I just yearn for being back yeah. in China. Oddly yeah. enough, because it's just easier, you know, and yeah. it, it it reminds me how antiquated 
or how slow the development is when I do go back and I see it face to face on what you have to deal with to get certain things done. I mean, mm. it's amazing. It seems like, as you mentioned, these tech companies getting into finance here in China, they're going to leave everybody in the dust and uh, yeah, they're really going to have control of the industry Definitely. when they do that. Okay. A couple questions I ask everyone that comes on the show, then I'll let you go. And I appreciate you giving me this much time today. Um, three pieces of advice for people who want to just perform better in life, at work, in relationships. Like just what are three pieces of advice that you found uh, you know, effective or beneficial in your life? Um, organization, you know, thinking about something before you get into it. Mm -hmm. um, planning and thinking outside the box. I mean, I, I never thought that I'd be living in China, running my own company mm. with, uh, you know, eight staff. I mean, the, the, when you set your mind to something to do it, what you can accomplish is truly amazing. And mm. that sounds very cliche, very but, cliche, yeah. but it's, it's very true uh -huh. because I've been able to do it. And when I think, you make that commitment that you're, you're going to go for it. Yeah. I mean, nobody, if you're listening to this podcast, you have the resources at hand to be able to do whatever you pretty much whatever you want to do in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're coming from a reasonable background and have the access to resources. So take advantage of that. And, right. and yeah. Nice. Um, if you could give a phone call to your 20 year old self, what would you tell you? Wow. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I look back in my life and I'm really happy with how things have turned out and where I am today. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if I would, um, um, tell myself anything different, I guess maybe keep a journal, I think, keep because I, I, I think I've really enjoyed uh, everything since my 20s, and mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to whatever the future holds. But, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to look back at that a little bit more, it's one of those things that you always say, oh, yeah, I should keep a journal, but you never do. Right. And I think... Interesting. I haven't gotten that one before. Yeah. Um, the best advice you've ever received, if you can recall? Just try. Just try. Yeah. I think, I think my, parents, my parents have been there in my entire life, and they've always supported me, and they've never forced me to do anything, mm -hmm. but they've always supported me. And, and whenever I had the option, you know, when I graduated from school, I took the job at Citibank, I, I pushed to go to London, mm -hmm. right? And I pushed to do that, and, and I was scared. I was scared, you know, but the try and, and take advantage of change, I think. Is, nice. Is. What's your favorite quote? I don't, I don't really have can't, an answer. Can't remember yeah. one? Yeah. Um, person you admire most and why? Uh, I think, I mean, uh, again, another cliche thing is, is my parents because the, you know, the, the calm, straightforward nature that they raised me and the opportunities that they gave me were pretty incredible. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are very forward-thinking, and you, know, you could talk about the Jeff Bezos or the Elon Musks or the the Jack Ma's even that, mm -hmm. that are changing the industry out there. And so I think, um, yeah, I think my, my parents and, and some of those business leaders, I think are, are quite up there inspiring. Okay. Yeah. Rapid fire. So this is word association. I'm going to say a word. I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. It's, it's easy. It's a layup. Jack Ma. Future of finance. Success. Happiness. China. Opportunity. Fun. Happiness. Future. Opportunity. Bitcoin. Blockchain. Awesome. So, Zenon, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. I know this is probably not how you like to spend your Sunday afternoons, but uh, or mornings into afternoons. Um, is there any information you want to put out there for people that want to 
consult your material, get in touch, web address, email, anything like that? Yeah, no, our best resource, and we have a lot of commentary on what's happening in the industry, is mm-hmm. Capron Asia. And so that's just... Um, K-A-P-R-O-N-Asia.com? Dot com, yeah. And there's a contact us link on there. Um, if you have a chance, read the book. It's on Amazon, and uh, leave a review. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I, I actually read it yesterday. It's a real quick read, but it does give you a really nice, concise overview of the, the most important time, history of Bitcoin in China. It also gives you some general Bitcoin information, but certainly if you're looking to understand, understand what's going on with Bitcoin in China, it's a great primer. Great. And then but the, 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 the thing I always... Uh, any any technology that's moving very quickly you always like you wish it's hard to have it up uh, completely up to date right so i'm sure you'll probably end up updating that book in a year's time or whatever because things things happen so fast but as far as i can tell from my my reading of the book it's 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 all still very relevant yeah. and uh it's 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 a great way to uh to open the door to what's going on in china so i, I do recommend uh, that you check that out and of course, for us, you can get us at techinshanghai.com um, or on YouTube and Twitter. Just look for us under the Tech in Shanghai banner there. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.